Pastor David Jones. Welcome to my sermon archives. For more audio sermons, books, blog posts, and other goodies, visit www.pastordavidwentz.com. That's spelled W-E-N-T-Z. And follow me on Facebook or LinkedIn. I pray God speaks to you as you listen. Let's join together and sing the key verse found in the bulletin. Ephesians 3.10 His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Ephesians 3.10 We are following through the book of Ephesians. And if you would care to, I'll be reading from the... uh, Pew Bibles, the black Bibles that you have in the pews there, starting with Ephesians 3, which can be found on page 1820, and comparing sometimes with the New Living Translation, which is what we just heard. Paul writes, uh, he starts out, he, he says, for this reason... And that refers back to what he's been talking about, what we looked at a couple of weeks ago. We took a break last week for All Saints Sunday, but looking at the plan that he's been talking about, God's plan that the Gentiles, who are the non-Jewish people, and the Jews, who were the Hebrews, God's chosen people, would both come together to form a new Creation, a new kind of people, which we call the church. And Paul goes on and, and he says that, that uh, at the last part of chapter 2 that we finished up with a couple of weeks ago, he says, Consequently, you, being the Gentiles, the non Jewish people, are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The church, this new creation made up of Jewish people who believe in Jesus and non-Jewish people who believe in Jesus all together, the one new creation, are being built into a temple, which is a place where God is worshipped, and a dwelling, which is a place where God lives. That's us. That's not a building, that's us. We are the living stones being built into that, Peter said. And so Paul goes on and he says, for this reason, because of all of that, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and we stop there for a moment and say, prisoner? Paul wrote this letter and many of the letters in the New Testament during his time of imprisonment. He was arrested uh, on trumped up charges, just like Jesus was arrested on trumped-up charges of defying uh, the Jewish religion and desecrating the temple. 
And he spent several years in jail. And a lot of us would look at that and say, what a waste. What was God thinking? This is the most effective missionary, the most effective church planter who probably ever lived in the history of the church in several years at the prime of his life and effectiveness, he's locked away in jail. But you know, that's when he wrote the letters that became much of our New Testament. Most of those letters, not all of them, but most of them, and certainly the longer, more uh, theological in-depth ones, were written while he was in jail. We would not have those. Had Paul not been in jail. Some of us may look at other people we know, we may look at our own lives and say, what a waste. What can I do for God now? Now that I'm this old, or now that I no longer drive, or now that I whatever. But you know, God can use us in any circumstances, and he may use us more effectively if we look back after we've been in heaven for several hundred years and look at what happened and what came out of it, God may use that time more effectively. And so Paul was a prisoner. He says, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. And then he, he breaks off and he says, surely you've heard. Because he hadn't actually... At this time, I'm not sure uh, if he had, if this was written before. I forgot, I shouldn't have got into this. I forgot to look up whether this was written before or after he was in Ephesus. But anyway, he says, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. God put Paul in charge of the organizational and logistical details, the administration of getting God's grace into the hearts of people. See, God has the grace that he wants to give us. God has the things he wants to do in this life. But as the song we just sang said, God does his work through his people. And that's why we have to respond, here am I, send me. Here I am, Lord, I'll go. So God put Paul in charge of that, the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. See, Paul was already saved, but it was given to Paul to bring the grace to the Gentiles, to the people who wouldn't hear it otherwise, wouldn't know God otherwise. He goes on in verse 3. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I've already written briefly. In reading this thing, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy prophets and apostles. He's talking about 
the fact that he has something that the Gentiles need. He has some knowledge. He has some understanding. He has a message from God for them. And this message came by revelation. Now, nowadays there are a lot of people who tend to discount the idea of revelation. If it doesn't come from science, then you can forget it. But there is a, does anybody know the meaning of the word epistemology? Epistemology is the study of how you know things. And there are basically two ways of knowing things. You can figure it out for yourself through your own experience and observations or somebody else tells you. Okay, either you figure it out yourself or somebody else tells you directly or through a book or a classroom or something, some way you get it from somebody else. The vast majority of things that you know are the second way, right? Almost, most of the things you know, you know because somebody taught you, and thank you to all the teachers in here, hooray for the teachers. You know it because somebody taught you, or because you read it, or because you learned it in some way other than your personal experience. Okay? I've never been to China. I believe there's a place called China, but I haven't experienced China. I know about China because somebody told me. I know about math because somebody told me. I know about almost everything. History. I didn't experience the vast majority of that history. Even the part of it I was around for. Even the things that you figure out for yourself, most of them are based on at least some things that somebody else told you. But what if the person who told you doesn't know what they're talking about? Anybody ever experienced that? Somebody assures you such and such, and it's not. They don't know what they're talking about. So the most reliable information comes from the person who's smartest and has the most knowledge, right? Does that make sense? So who is the smartest and most knowledgeable person in the universe? God. So the most reliable information comes from God. Comes by revelation. Some of, the, of what God teaches it, he teaches us through what we would call the normal means, but some of it comes directly. And that's why Paul spends our entire first reading emphasizing that his teaching came by revelation from God. It's not just some human idea. It's not something somebody cooked up. The God of the universe told me himself, Paul says. And in almost every part of history, except this little bit that we're in right now, that would be more reliable. 
considered more reliable. It's always more reliable. It would be considered more reliable, recognized as more reliable than the things that we just cook up with our own little brains. Paul goes on. In verse 6, he says, This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promising Christ Jesus. We looked at that last week. That's Paul had talked about that some in uh, chapter 2 as well. The Gentiles and the Jews together. He reemphasizes this because it was just such such an unthinkable idea to the Jews that anybody that wasn't born Jewish could have all the same spiritual rights and privileges. So that's why Paul emphasizes it. He goes on and he says, I became a servant of this gospel. This is this section here and the section we, we heard in the first reading are among the most personal of Paul's writings, talking about himself and his own experiences. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me by the working of his power, although I am less than the least of all God's people. This grace was given to me. He emphasizes it's not something he deserved. It's not something he earned. It's not something he worked for. It's just a gift of God's grace. And so we want to ask, why Paul? Did God just close his eyes and go throw a dart? And it landed on Paul? No. I think there are reasons that God chose Paul. Paul says he chose me even before I was born, but... God knew before he was born the kind of person he was going to be. Paul was a strict Pharisee. He was zealous. He was committed. He was 100% all in for God. He, He had grown up in Tarsus, but he had committed himself so much to serving God that he made the uh, effort, which was quite an effort in those days, to move from Tarsus, which was the southern coast of Turkey, across the Mediterranean Sea and down to Israel and to go to Jerusalem to study, probably under Gamaliel, we don't know for sure, I think, but anyway, to study, and he was... Uh, One of the rising lights, he was one of the major theological experts in the Old Testament law, even at a a fairly young age, mid to late 30s. He was the kind of a person that put everything he had into it. And we can see this by the fact that he was the one who was so zealous in persecuting the Christians because he saw the Christians as a dangerous cult that were leading people away from the true worship of God. So Saul, Paul was known as Saul in in that time. His, His Hebrew name was Saul. 
He was one of those that was, you might almost call him fanatical to serve God. But he had an incomplete understanding of who God was. And so we know the story. He was, he had pretty much wiped out the church in Jerusalem. People had scattered all over. Uh, a number of Christians had gone to Damascus and set up there. And Saul got permission from the high priest to go and rout them out and throw them in jail, even in Damascus. And while he was on his way there, Jesus appeared to him, revealed who he was. And so he had this revelation that we've already talked about. And the first reading says that he immediately stopped persecuting the Christians and started supporting them, but they we kind of stand back and who is this guy, you know, and this is a trick, right? And so he went off into Arabia and he spent three years working through all of his Old Testament knowledge in light of this new revelation that Jesus was the Messiah and Messiah didn't mean an earthly ruler who was going to kick the Romans out. It meant all the things about Jesus. And so he worked all that through and went through the whole Old Testament and understood that now in the light of the revelation of Jesus being the Messiah. Essentially creating the whole new theological understanding of God that has become known as the gospel. And God knew that this was the kind of a person Paul was and that he had the ability and the mindset to do this kind of a thing. And that's why God chose Paul. And you know what? God still needs people who will be all in for God, people who will be 100% committed. And the decision of whether to be that kind of a person is entirely up to you. Make yourself totally available to God. And God will find you and God will use you. Probably won't be as dramatic and world-changing as Paul. But it will be something that God needs done to advance his kingdom. And it will be the most rewarding thing that you can ever do. So we go on, verse, uh, second half of verse 8. He says, To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. We've already talked about that mystery, the new person, the new human race, the new church that would have the Holy Spirit in the church, in all of the church. And therefore the Holy Spirit with hands and feet and mouth in millions of individual units all around the world to do God's will. God kept that a mystery because if the devil knew that was coming, he never would have crucified Jesus. Verse 10, his intent was that now through the church, through this new humanity that he's put together, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm. 
God was counting on us, the church, to demonstrate to the devil and the angels that followed the devil and the angels that stayed with God to demonstrate that God actually knew what he was doing. Over in uh, a couple of paragraphs back, we saw that God wanted to demonstrate to the spiritual universe his kindness and love and mercy by doing good things for us and to us. Now it says, and we all say, hooray, pour it on, you know, do the good things, I'll, I'll receive them. And now he says he's counting on us to demonstrate his wisdom. God has a plan for us. God has a plan for the church. God is counting on us to demonstrate. If you look at some of the news about some aspects of the church in the world today, you think, thinking, my goodness, we're not doing a very good job. We're not look, making God look so smart. But God has a plan and God is counting on us. And we're going to come back to that in a minute. Verse 11. According to his eternal purpose. This wasn't a backup plan that God came up with. His eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Accomplished is past tense. It's already done. The game's already won. We're just playing it out. And so verse 12, in him and through faith in him, in Jesus, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Those four words there, we may approach God if you think about that, that blows your mind. But we can do it if we are in Jesus. And if we have faith in Jesus. You have faith to become a Christian, to accept Jesus as your Lord, and you are incorporated into him, into his body, and you are in, in him, and then you exercise that faith to take advantage of that position of being in Jesus to come before God. And you don't have to come before God cringing and fearing and apologizing and saying, gee, I, I don't want to bother you and I know you have more important things to do. All of that is pretty much of an insult to God, you know? Because God is your father. God is your daddy, the Bible says. And he wants to love you and do good things. He does love you. He wants to do good things for you and give you everything you need. But it also implies that he's not big enough and doesn't have the ability to take care of you and also take care of China and Syria and the, the wildfires and whatever. God can do all of that. He doesn't have to neglect somebody else to take care of you. So we can come with freedom and confidence before God. Confidence is just another name for faith, right? And that could be a whole series of sermons about approaching God with freedom and confidence. 
But I want to get on here a little bit. Verse 13 is the last we're going to talk about today. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. There's an idea among some branches of the church that when you come to Jesus, he protects you from everything bad. Well, that's not true. The Bible doesn't say that. It never implies that. It says God will get you through it. And it says, if you follow God's advice, you can avoid a whole bunch of stuff. But it never says you won't have any sufferings. Paul had sufferings. Paul was in jail. If it happened to Paul, it can happen to anybody. But don't be discouraged when you suffer, when somebody else suffers. It's just another part of the plan. It's another part of learning. I mean, I had to suffer through learning the multiplication table. But it's done me a lot of good ever since. So I want to go back to verse 10. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And I want to ask, how does God want to show his wisdom through eminence, United Methodist Church. Last spring, as as Dick mentioned earlier, we started the vision and purpose and plans process, and we got sidetracked during the summer, and then uh, things were just busy, September, October, and... We hope to get back to it now, and Wednesday we'll be talking about having another of those breakfasts. At the one breakfast, we came up with a draft vision, which is our our understanding of the picture of what God wants us to be. And it said something like this, Eminence United Methodist Church, a welcoming, loving, inspiring, fun, sharing, growing family of God. And we had another breakfast and we looked at his purpose for us here. God has a threefold purpose for inventing the church to be a family home for God to dwell with his people. And we saw that in our scripture. We're being built into a dwelling place to raise up God's adopted children to be like the big brother Jesus and to invite everyone to be adopted into the family. And so all churches have seven functions that help those three purposes happen. We worship, which just keeps our focus on God, keeps our priorities right, because if the more you're focused on God, the less the devil can scare you or deceive you. Discipleship, which is learning to be like Jesus. The Bible says, Later on in what we'll probably see in a couple of weeks that the purpose of the church, the church is going to continue on until we're all like Jesus. Fellowship, which is being together, sharing that love, that family life. Prayer, which is the communication, the the channel for our resources. Uh, Evangelism, which is inviting other people into the family. Mercy, which is helping out individuals who are in trouble. Justice, which is working on the larger societal systems that 
keep this world from being like heaven? And so the question is, now, in all of those, what is it that God has for us here, this particular group of people, at this place, at this time? We're not here by accident. God is up to something here. He has a plan. God has put people here who are, and and trying to say, we're here in eminence, there are a bunch of other churches in eminence, what is our part of it? A lot of the people in this congregation, how shall I say this, have a whole lot of experience, a whole lot of maturity. You've lived a lot. And the Bible says that gives you wisdom and the ability to pray about things. That's a strength. That's an asset. We have a lot of education in this room. A lot of teachers, a lot of other people with uh, that kind of ability. And those, those kinds of abilities are one good thing. Other, ch- other churches may have more of a different kind that is also good, but doesn't make us any better or worse than, but just trying to figure out what's our niche. We have uh, beautiful buildings that give us the ability to do things. So working out what is it that God is calling us to do specifically. And some of those specific ideas came back, came up back in the, Spring, and we'll be looking at them some more. God has a plan for you, like He had a plan for Saul, who became Paul. No matter who you are, or what you've done, or how old you are, how young you are, how anything you are, if God could turn Saul into Paul, He can do something with you. You just keep seeking Him and offering yourself and acting in faith and repeating. Seek, offer, act, repeat, S-O-A-R, and your spirit will soar. And God has a plan for this congregation. No matter how small we are or how matter, no matter how anything we are, and it's the same formula as a congregation. We seek God, we offer ourselves, we do what we feel like he's leading us to do, and if we don't feel any specific leading, we just do what we think is the best as we pray about it, and then we do it again. Come back, seek, offer, act, repeat. God has a plan for us. He's not done with us. And somehow he's going to use us to demonstrate his wisdom to all the watching universe. Let's say our key verse again. Ephesians 3.10. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Ephesians 
please visit www.pastordavidwentz.com. That's spelled W-E-N-T-Z. And follow me on Facebook or LinkedIn. May God bless you as we do Christianity together. See you next time.